I think it's an exciting time in healthcare and in healthcare innovation right now, but also one that should force all of us to look at some of the fundamentals. Let's not just try and kind of shoehorn in one innovation after another to a reimbursement structure that we have or to an organizational structure that we have or to a way of delivering that we have, but really think differently about what kind of system do we need to build around these innovations. That was Sam Glick talking about the need for healthcare leaders to be more strategic when it comes to adopting innovation, whether it's new drugs coming to market or advanced technology like artificial intelligence. I'm Matthew Weinstock, Senior Editor at Oliver Wyman, and in this podcast, I talked with Glick about the opportunities and challenges facing the industry as we head into the second half of 2023. Glick is the global head of Oliver Wyman's health and life sciences practice. Earlier this year, he laid out an agenda for the healthcare CEO. It included adopting and adapting to the rapid pace of innovation, as well as responding to major challenges like workforce shortages and an uncertain economy. In this podcast, we assess how the industry is doing and what adjustments leaders need to make going forward. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. For more insights on the business of transforming healthcare, visit our online publication, health.oliverwyman.com. And now we pick things up with Glick describing innovations that have captured a lot of attention across the industry this year. There is tremendous excitement about the role of generative AI or the role of GLP-1s or the role of basically any kind of new technology that's coming through. And so there really is excitement. The challenge I think we have is for many of those innovations, they don't fit naturally into the structures that we have built into healthcare. If you take AI, for example, is it technology? Is it a workforce? Who should manage it in the organization? Is that something coming out of IT, something coming out of clinical, something coming out of HR? And is it just something that we're then going to layer on top of what we already do, but require a bunch of humans to check what it says? Are we really willing to hand over the keys with all the risks that that entails? And similarly, when we look at GLP-1s, their impact on weight is is hard to refute. The evidence is clear about what they have. But what that means, not just for cost, but the way in which we engage people and support people long-term. Do people need to be on these drugs for life? What does it mean to be on these drugs for life? Manage and monitor them for life. We're simply not set up to do that as a health system, much less are we set up to pay for all of it. And so I think it's an exciting time in healthcare and in healthcare innovation right now, but also one that should force all of us to look at some of the fundamentals. Let's not just try and kind of shoehorn in one innovation after another to a reimbursement structure that we have or to an organizational structure that we have or to a way of delivering that we have, but really think differently about what kind of system do we need to build around these innovations. I think the Oliver Wyman Health Innovation Center and the summit meeting that we do in September gets at this, especially when we think about new therapeutics coming to market. It's not always well integrated into the system that we have built, whether it's from a care delivery standpoint or a cost standpoint. Are you starting to see more of those conversations happen, whether it is therapeutics or technology, where parts of the industry are beginning to understand how we have to work more closely together? I think we finally are. To me, what is so interesting about GLP-1s in particular is they are forcing us to think about the question you just raised in mass, right? How do we redesign the system? 
they literally treat the most common health condition in the United States. We're now at a point where 73% of Americans are overweight or obese. What that tells us is that something's not working about our system. When you have a condition that almost three quarters of Americans have, something's not working about the traditional way that we try and serve and motivate those people. This is really forcing health systems to look differently. And I'm seeing lots of different approaches. It feels a little bit like the Wild West. You know, we've got all these kind of federated experiments out there. Some are partnering with third parties, often smaller companies that specialize uh, in managing weight and weight loss and managing GLP-1s. Others are partnering with payers to think about more efficient purchasing. Some are thinking about specialized facilities or telehealth models. Some of those will work and some of them won't. We certainly haven't figured it out yet. But the push coming with GLP-1s on the back of uh, a pandemic that forced us to think differently about a lot of things already, ultimately will probably be very good for healthcare. As you think about those partnerships and, and conversations that are evolving what stands out to you for the organizations that will succeed in this transformation? Are there certain characteristics? I think those organizations that will succeed are clear about their mission, clear about what they want to achieve and their objective, and it can't be being everything for everybody. One of the things that we know is that there's no such thing anymore as a 50-year capital investment building a facility that's going to look a certain way, putting in a system that's going to be there for decades, whatever it might be. Population is moving. We're seeing demographic shifts in this country. We're seeing migration in this country. Care delivery modalities are moving. A willingness to say, we're going to build and invest in agile ways, technology that we rent, don't buy, facilities that can be moved or reallocated or that we lease, don't buy, labor models that might be far more flexible, where we're not necessarily making lifetime commitments to people. Those are the systems that I think are able to bob and weave and be agile. They know what their mission is. They know where they're headed, but how they get there, they're willing to learn from. The other thing is um, incentive alignment matters a lot. And there have been many false starts around value-based care in this country. And I think we can all point at what some of the reasons for those false starts have been. And it hasn't been the panacea, at least yet, that many people put it out there to be. But what we did see coming through the pandemic was those health systems with prepaid revenue in whatever form, whether it's capitation from a payer, whether they own their own health plan, did better. They were less volatile and they performed better. What we see when we look at to our conversation about GLP-1s, that the longer an entity is responsible for somebody's health and their total cost of care, the more sense it makes for them to pay for drugs like GLP-1. And we're going to see more and more of that. You know, We're going to see this need for incentive alignment, this need for longer-term risk pooling. And, and the move to value is a really important part of that. So I think, Sam, that fits into one of the other things you spotlighted in your article earlier this year of the risks facing the industry, one of which obviously being the economy. Inflation may have eased a little bit, but we still see tight credit markets. The private equity funding remains pretty tight. We had the banking crisis, which has obviously impacted lending. If you think both short-term, by short-term, I mean the second half of the year, and then going into maybe the next two to three years, are there adjustments that you see organizations needing to make and making to succeed and to make that pivot towards more of a outcomes or value-based environment. So this is, this is an incredibly uncertain economic environment, but perhaps more importantly, demographics are 
stacked against us. This is a country that is aging faster than it's growing. We are getting sicker, not healthier. Some of that due to aging, some of that due to other factors. And the costs of taking care of people are growing and continue to grow. Some of that's unnecessary cost, but some of that's truly the cost of innovation and of helping people live longer, higher quality lives. That's an inevitable truth. That is something that we are up against. What we know is that being in a commodity business where you don't have a meaningful direct relationship with the consumer isn't a recipe for success. So if you're a health plan, being a commodity claims processor or network manager isn't enough. And it's why we see health plans getting into so-called vertical integration, right? getting into care delivery themselves, getting closer to the customer, closer to the consumer, getting into pharmacy, which is actually the fastest growing healthcare cost and the healthcare provider people see the most. The thing you do most often in healthcare is take a pill. It's why we see healthcare providers moving into more risk-based arrangements, moving into more diversified models around virtual and home health and whatever, starting health plans of their own. It's why we see pharma thinking about how they build digital models and how they build more direct relationships and, and not just be a commodity player. And I think that's really important because fundamentally, we are all expected to be in the behavior change game. And whether that is about getting people to engage in behaviors that help prevent and address chronic conditions, like eating better and exercising more, you've got to trust the person who's giving you advice. You've got to be able to change their behavior. Whether that's about getting somebody to take a vaccine that they might be skeptical of, you've got to be able to change their behavior, get them to trust you. If that's about addressing the mental health epidemic and building therapeutic alliance, that's about behavior change and getting somebody to trust you. Or if it's as simple as getting them to take a pill, very few of us understand how those pills really work. And it's about somebody we trust changing our behavior and getting us to do that. And I think that's the essence of it, which is we're all in the behavior change business, which means we're all in the trust business. And to do that, we have to have meaningful long-term relationships with the consumers themselves. Expand on that a little bit for me, the topic of trust and where you think the industry is now in rebuilding or capturing the trust of consumers? We've got a lot of work to do. You know, we were an industry that was mixed in terms of consumer trust to begin with coming into the COVID pandemic. Health plans were pretty low on trust. You saw low on net promoter score. Healthcare providers were somewhat higher. Individual providers like doctors and nurses and pharmacists did much better. And then what we did going into the pandemic was we, we, for better or worse, politicized healthcare and often gave people bad advice and told them things that were pragmatic to us but seemed inhumane to them, like you can't visit your relative in the hospital even as they're dying. And, you know, as we sit here today, nearly one quarter of all Americans still think COVID was a hoax. It's not that they just were anti-mask or anti-vax or think we messed up the public health response. They full-on think that we've been lying to them for three years as a system. And what that does is it creates a lot of anger and a lot of mistrust. And this isn't about re-educating around COVID, but this is about acknowledging that, that when people show up in an emergency room and pick up the person at the front desk by their shirt collar, that's an anger problem. That's a trust problem, right? They don't want to be there. They don't think we're going to take care of them. When somebody calls up their health plan and screams at them, you know, that's a trust problem based on, on what they believe, what they've seen on social media, what their friends say. When they refuse to take a vaccine made by, you know, some of the world's most, we would think of in the industry, most respected pharma companies, they, they don't respect those places. They think they're mistrustful and out to make a buck. 
it is on all of us to find new ways of reaching people. And those new ways of reaching people may be ways that make us uncomfortable. You know, one of our, our speakers at the Health Innovation Summit later this year is going to be Austin Chang. Austin's a physician, but he's also uh, a leader at Medtronic and a TikTok star. Austin tells him great stories about, you know, he builds more trust on TikTok than he does reviewing and publishing studies on Medtronic, at least among consumers. We're not wired to think that way um, and think about reaching people in that way. And we're going to have to get comfortable with that pretty quickly. As you said earlier, we've got an aging population. I think the Census Bureau in late June, the median age has reached the highest point it's ever been. But we also have this rising Gen Z population, and the Oliver Wyman Forum did a lot of great research on Gen Z earlier this year. As you think about those two opposites of the demographic scale, how does the healthcare industry need to adjust to serve both those populations? There are tailored ways we need to reach different generations. But the simplest way to do that is not to treat different generations like it's some sort of anthropological study that those of us have, you know, reached more senior positions need to go learn about them. You know, the best way to reach people who are Gen Z, hire people who are Gen Z and actually put them in charge of doing the outreach, right? People who are Gen Z have graduated from nursing school, are coming into medical residencies, right? They know how to reach their peers. They know how to engage with their peers, but we don't ask them often enough. We don't put them in those positions often enough. And you don't need a bunch of data and research if you have the right employees who can empathize. I would apply this everywhere. It's not just generational. Do you have leaders who look like the people they're serving? If you're trying to create a Medicaid program that works, do you have any leaders there who actually grew up on Medicaid or were ever on Medicaid, who know what it's like to live a life paycheck to paycheck? That kind of empathy gets you 90% of the way there. What are you excited about as we turn the corner on 2023? Um, You know, healthcare is a place where at our best, we use science for good and we scale it to the masses. I think that's tremendously exciting. The other thing I think is tremendously exciting is we're speaking about virtual care, I think, with a different context and a different tone than we have. It's been around for a long time. We've reimbursed for it for 20 plus years. But pre-COVID, it was kind of ancillary. You know, here's the thing you do off to the side. It's not the traditional system. We went through COVID. Obviously, we saw big spikes in telehealth utilization, and that's come way down. But even though it's come down, the more permanent change seems to be talking about it in the same breath as talking about physical care and home care and all the other forms of care. And I think that's really important, which is you know, thinking about how we reach people where they are in a way that it's resonant and convenient and contemporary and relevant for them. That's a big deal. And, and that, that applies to far more than whom we might picture, right, being more digitally native. I, I had the privilege of having a conversation of actually several homebound seniors. But they said one of the things they liked about coming through COVID was that they learned to do video visits and didn't have to get loaded up in a van to go to the doctor. That's not who we picture, 80-year-olds homebound in an apartment in a city somewhere. But virtual care made a big difference for them. Virtual care makes a big difference for the working mom on Medicaid, where the only time she can see a doctor is at midnight. And I'm really excited about those opportunities. This is an exciting time in healthcare, but it's a scary time. To your point about generations, the average age of leaders I meet of particularly big healthcare organizations is certainly within line of sight of retirement most of the time. 
it would be really easy for those leaders to run a good operation, solid operation, do what they've always done for three or four years, and then hand it off to whoever's next. But man, the places that really are doing something different, those leaders are running headfirst into change and saying, actually, being at that stage of my career is an advantage. What have I got to lose? What harm is it to take this risk to me personally? And I would just encourage everybody to adopt that mindset. We're going to have to take some risks, some appropriate risks, some safe risks. We're not going to put the people we serve in danger, but we're going to have to take some personal risks as leaders. And I hope everybody does that. we got to reinforce each other in, in having the courage to do it. Well, great. Sam, I appreciate you taking some time to, to talk about what's happening in the industry today. Thanks for doing it. Always great to chat. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast, brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. For more insights on the business of transforming healthcare, visit our online publication, health.oliverwyman.com.